Welcome to Nothing Never Happens. Today's podcast is on the topic of eco-pedagogies. There's be lots of resources and definitions on the website www.tinapippin.org. Uh, today, I welcome two guests. I'm very excited about this. Uh, they work with the Green Seminary Initiative that they will be talking about. Um, our first guest is Laurel Kearns, who is Associate Professor of Sociology and Religion and Environmental Studies at Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey. She also teaches in the Graduate Division of Religion at Drew University. She helped to found the Green Seminary Initiative and is a board member of Green Faith and the author of many wonderful articles on religion and ecology and the role of faith-based organizations, uh, religious organizations doing environmental work. Um, our ne other guest is Professor Tim Van Meter, who's Associate Professor of Christian Education and Youth Ministry and Coordinator of the Cross-Cultural Program. Um, he is uh, the author of Created in Delight, Youth Ministry and the Mending of the World, uh, as well as other articles, and is one of the leaders in uh, the religion and ecology and theology movement, along with Laurel. So Tim and Laurel, welcome to Nothing Never Happens. Thank Wonderful you. to be here. Well, I'm glad you could be here, too. There's too much to talk about, because you are all, you are both theorists and scholars and practitioners and activists, and you have set the model in your own lives and work um, at your institutions and also in your classrooms for uh, doing eco-pedagogy and for doing eco-justice. And so uh, first question I want to ask is, uh, your own starting points in this work. What are what are some were some of the roots and origins for you as um, you did um, your own academic work, but then uh, moving beyond that? I, I can talk a little bit. Um, prior to going to uh, Candler and then Emory GDR, mm -hmm. um, I worked both in youth ministry, but also as an environmental. Um, planner for a road engineering firm and um, planned uh, walked corridor for some highways and some other bridge projects and that and it was in the midst of that um, with my kind of commitments to outdoor life uh, backpacking trips I had led with fathers and daughters in Colorado as well as uh, other young people um, within the kind of youth ministry form of things and then uh -huh. after leaving that um, being a working with an engineering firm and, and realizing in the midst of that a deep love for the world and a real frustration with uh, my participation in the myth of progress so I wouldn't have had yeah. that language at that time yeah and um, at the same time my father was struggling with some um, significant illness that he passed mm -hmm. that ended up uh, taking his life and I just asked the question several days as walking these long corridors. We had a highway project that was about 100 miles. Each corridor, we had four corridors, and so I walked them all at least once over the yeah. course of uh, several years. Um, what, do, what questions do I want to ask? What commitments do I want to make? Um, I did not want to be the person giving ecological permission for roads we didn't need. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I uh, 
I was a pretty poor undergraduate student. I was very good at uh, tapping kegs and being at the parties, but not so good at being in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. And uh, but um, Candler offered me an opportunity to come in uh, as a probationary student. I found the heart of my passion there, mm-hmm. and uh, didn't look back. And within the doctoral program and the master's program. Uh, both the doctor program at the GDR, there wasn't anybody really doing what I was doing, and there was no professor who I could really work with, mm-hmm. but there was always an openness that the questions that I found so important on weaving ecology, justice, and theology together were valid questions, and they would support mm-hmm. me. Let me be the yeah. initiation of all this. Yeah. Okay, Laurel, how about your own background? Well, I'm really fortunate. Mine goes way, way, way back. I was born on the island of Sanibel off the west coast of Florida, and that place deeply imprinted on me, and I still consider it one of my life's teachers, is just Uh that place, that island. Um, It was also an island that um, already was quite involved in conservation movement, and it set aside a large portion of the island into a wildlife refuge and the folks that came down there and stayed, my parents ran cottages, um, often mm-hmm. were birders, were people who were environmental activists early in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up knowing about the Club of Rome and Rachel Carson, mm-hmm. all sorts yeah. of things. I don't remember not being an environmentalist. Uh-huh. And in high school, I was fortunate enough to be enrolled in an environmental education program uh-huh. that took us out of the classroom, I think, every other Monday. And my group in particular worked to convince taxpayers in a county that was a lot of retired people to um, add to their taxes to set aside a cypress swamp called Six Mile Cypress Slough. Uh-huh. And if you ever go to Fort Myers, visit it because that's where I my teeth as an environmental activist. And that's where I learned um, really that people can make a difference. But I also learned the importance from both of those locales. You can already see how much place Uh is important to me. Um, At the same time, I was a very conservative Christian. Uh And as I started to head off to college to want to study in ecology, um, I was being prayed for, and it was clear that this was not a, a permissible or um, yeah. acceptable to go off and study science. And yet for me, this wanting to deeply understand God's creation and to work to save it was was integral to my faith. Mm-hmm. And that actually, um, I did still go off to college to study ecology and biology. And I did leave conservative Christianity over that tension. Uh-huh. But interestingly, I had read Lynn White as a high school student. Wow. Because I also had found um, Francis Schaeffer's um, okay. Evolution and the Death of Man. And so this was a really early evangelical statement on care for um, the earth. And he had included Lynn White's famous essay on... Um, historic roots of the ecological crisis um, in the back of that. Uh-huh. And in that piece, it talked about how Christianity, this is one of the famous quotes, bore a huge burden of guilt for the ecological crisis. And it talked about 
a worldview that parts of Christianity had fostered, and, and White is careful. He's not talking about Christianity like many of his critics later said, um, but that had fostered a view where this world in some ways was put here for human use hmm. um, and sort of how a dominion theology had, had risen to the fore and an attitude really that um, God was removed from the world, which I deeply disagreed with. Mm -hmm. uh, and just this, this problem and how Christian theology, certain strands of Christianity had become dominant and had really fostered this sort of technological worldview in which okay. we were doing things like Tim was describing. So those are my early roots. I um, actually didn't go to grad school to study this because I had left um, biology and ecology and sort okay. of had switched into a more sociological understanding of the presence of religion in the world. And I too went to Emory and um, in my graduate work in sociology religion there, I discovered through working with the um, Friends Committee on National Legislation that there were a group uh -huh. of religious lobbyists in Washington who were lobbying on environmental issues from a religious point of view. And I knew from my own history that this was a story people didn't know. Yeah. Because as act those young activists in um, Lee County, we never would have thought of going to churches for support. Uh -huh. so that's what my dissertation then was on, and like Tim, there weren't many people there doing uh, religion and ecology, so I was sort of doing all that work on my own, but I certainly had professors who were deeply um, empathetic and concerned about this relationship between um, religious worldviews and actions with uh -huh. relation to nature. Yeah. Well, um, that's that's an early origin story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you're both teaching at seminaries. Um, yeah. Was there anything going on at Drew when you arrived, Laurel, around ecology and environmental justice? I, I, I always say I am really one of those lucky ones. I was hired in the early 90s in part because of this work. And I came to a place where the um, theologian, the process theologian Catherine Keller was already writing on this. And Heather Elkins in our uh, liturgy and preaching was already doing um, liturgical ritual and sermons and also on this. And in fact, I met her at the precursor to the Green um, Seminary Initiative, which was the theological education to meet the environmental challenge. Uh -huh. and I met Heather there. I met Catherine at the very first session of the Religion and Ecology group at AAR where she was the discussant for my paper. So rarely when you're at the beginning of a sort of emerging field do you get to go to some place where there are already people teaching. Uh -huh. Yeah. And it made so much possible for me. Yeah, that's really uh probably one of the only places that happened back in the early 90s. Um, yeah. So let me just say that the uh, American Academy of Religion is AAR. It's the Professional okay. Society for Religious Studies Scholars, uh, in case people don't know that who are listening. Um, 
So could I get you, Laurel, and, and you also, Tim, to talk about the Green Seminary Initiative since we're on that uh, and what, uh, how it started and what it's doing now and why you're a part of it. Tim, you want me to talk about how it started and then you can really talk about all the wonderful things we're doing now? That sounds great, yes. So the Green Seminary Initiative started in part because um, there were three of us that came together, but I had been going around sort of mouthing off about how upset I was that Union in New York City wasn't replacing Larry Rasmussen with someone that huh. did a sort of ecological focus, and Vanderbilt wasn't really replacing Sally McFaig, yeah. and Garrett hadn't really replaced Rosemary Radford-Ruther. Huh. I was noticing this pattern that here were some of the guiding theological um, figures for my generation, and subsequent generations, uh -huh. and yet their institutions didn't value their, the ecological part of their work enough to make sure that was replaced. And I realized then that that meant it was person-specific and not institutionally owned. Yeah. And we needed to do something about it, and I had been part of this earlier initiative called the um, theological education to meet the environmental challenge and it had made an immense amount of difference for me to come in as a young scholar really knowing many of these key figures and really okay. um, great pedagogical advice. Yeah. So a woman named Beth Norcross who was a graduate of Wesley also was at that time discontent that theological education really wasn't uh, teaching students for this. She came out of a background of what of um, sort of science and environment, working lobbying on the Hill in Washington, uh -huh. and then gone to seminary. And we, um, she had made contact with David Rhodes, who was at uh, Lutheran Theological yeah. School in Chicago, uh -huh. and he had kept the web of creation going from that first um, TMEC initiative, uh -huh. and, and there kept syllabi and sort of then also the the foundational five-part focus of the Green Seminary, he had already been uh, articulating. Uh -huh. And so the Green Seminary Initiative um, works to provide resources and now actually a certification program in uh -huh. five areas. And, and I hope people will notice our, from our perspective, all five of this, these areas of theological education teach. And that was part of the point we wanted to make. Yeah. So part of it is obviously on the curriculum. What classes are offered? When is it in required courses? All sorts of different ways to bring it into your curriculum. But also then, how is it present in your liturgy, your rituals, your chapel services, uh -huh. whatever? might be particular to your your um, institution, but those ways also teach what we value, how we see the world. Um, yeah. So do our buildings and grounds. You know, uh -huh. what an institution values is pretty present in how they keep their grounds, uh -huh. the pesticides, the, the fertilizers, the uh -huh. kind of plants, the lack of plants but also our buildings and energy efficiency. And, and one of the things we realize is that our students in theological education are often going out to lead their own institutions. 
that have carbon footprints, that have huge grounds sometimes. And so if we weren't doing what we were talking about in the classroom, then that gap would be pretty evident. Another area is leadership and community life. How do we eat together? What are the public statements we make? How do our institutions invest their money? Yeah. Um, what are the kind of uh, campaigns or places we take a public stance on environmental justice, on um, climate change, those kind of things? Yeah. That's the breadth of the Green Seminary Initiative, is to try and help people work on any of those five areas. Uh -huh institution more responsive to the environmental crisis we face now and the future. And what I always say is if we aren't preparing religious leaders on this topic, then we're yeah. not preparing them for tomorrow, we're preparing them for yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. All right, Tim, where do you see the Green Seminary Initiative heading? Well, um, and Laurel and I and along with Beth and Fletcher and two um, directors, uh, Abby Mohopt and Sarah Macias, who uh, oversee all this, have been at the beginnings of that very conversation. Um, okay. And uh, I can't tell you all the secrets, but it's a great conversation. <laughs> but uh, no, some of the things that Laurel's talking about is are, are really important and have been important to us as an institution. Um, the certification process, um, we, we were doing some of the things pretty well already, uh -huh. um, I think especially around food and uh, some of the buildings and ground stuff and curriculum we were doing pretty well. Uh -huh. But the certification process gave, our, uh, gave us a larger framework to begin to think more holistically about the life of the institution in relation to these commitments. And it's kind of an ongoing process for us right now. Uh, MTSO is one of 14 schools in the midst of the um, certification process right now. And I think... Hmm. All the schools are located in different places, but are finding the conversation rich, as well as um, the possibilities of, of uh, the certification allowing us to, yeah. to kind of have that holistic vision, but also some leverage. Um, uh -huh. When there's uh, some resistance around certain things, you can point to the certification and say, listen, we need to do this. To yeah. just be in compliance with others who are doing this work. Uh -huh. That's an important part of that. Um, and the certification aspect of GSI is uh, one part of a grant that MTSO was the receiving institution for in partnership with the Green Seminaries Initiative, Green Faith, and the okay. Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development out of Jerusalem. Okay. So supporting schools in the certification process is really an important part of that. The other element of that, um, actually there's two other elements, but the other primary element of that are uh, the symposia we've done different parts of the country in Washington, D.C., here on our campus in Ohio last fall, and then uh, just a couple weeks ago in Atlanta at Columbia Theological Seminary to try to gather faculty, administration, and staff together to uh, think creatively about how to weave ecology throughout a theological curriculum. And yeah. uh, that's another important aspect of this, and that's uh, that the um, Fund for uh, the Loose Fund for Theological Education from the Henry Loose Foundation um, uh -huh. gave us a grant of four hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars for three years of this work, and it's an important, uh -huh. really initiating step, and it's given us the resources to kind of push forward, um, yeah. hoping to make this into a larger movement. 
Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping that each of the places, and I think Laurel's in agreement with this, each of the places we go to, as well as Drew, uh, who we hope to do some more work around interfaith leadership and mm -hmm. some of the things for GSI, that all these can are either continue to be seen or become hubs for this kind of conversation going forward uh, in schools of theology, but also maybe uh, other institutions of higher learning around them. Um, yeah. The third aspect is kind of uh, a smaller aspect. We have a small part of the grant that uh, we're doing some research and uh, asking questions about how are people thinking about this within their institutions. Um, we have a pretty significant um, uh, gathering of data or accumulation of data through uh -huh. the certification process. Yeah. Through that, that we do some early examination of and. And then from that, hoping to uh, construct a, a larger research project. But uh, mm -hmm. I, th I think that the thing that I, I there's a number of things I want to emphasize out of what Laurel said, said. But I think one of the most important things is the ebb and flow that yeah. seems to happen institutionally and nationally mm -hmm. around this. That uh, I don't know what that means, but uh, institutions not replacing key voices, I think, but also mm -hmm. institutions that take leadership and then pull back for a variety of reasons. We want to, I think GSI can be an important partner in making sure that um, folks are continuing on a, on a path towards sustainability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. important. Yeah. So that gets to it, the challenges and uh, institutional and, you know, the state of the nation right now that you're up against uh, in terms of um, the reduction of uh, resources for sustainable energy, for example, and the rise of uh, nuclear and coal again. Uh, so how uh, are you addressing and what are the challenges that you're facing, uh, especially with this current political climate? Well, I want to thank um, Tim for reminding everyone that uh -huh. uh, Green Seminary Initiative is, is co-hosted between Drew and Green Faith. And so mm. that was Fletcher Harper with Green Faith that was mentioned. And we really benefited, benefited from that organization's uh -huh. work nationally and internationally, um, and particularly a lot of work around the climate change talks and on mm. interfaith and a lot of the statements. And that really... Um, I'm glad he brought out that interfaith part of it because we only have one planet and all of our religious traditions share a sense of gratitude for the sources of our life. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, that's also one of the challenges is sometimes yeah. um, folks only think within their own tradition, they're reluctant to work with another tradition, or they just fundamentally misunderstand mm -hmm. how another... Um, tradition might approach something. And that's that's true on talking about all this, that that since a lot of eco-theology was shaped out of this response to Lynn White, uh -huh. um, that one, for one, shifted the focus toward a lot of work on worldviews and ideas. And that fit yeah. well with Christianity, um, because uh -huh. like the preach where we talk about being, you know, people of the book and of words, and yet words don't always translate into action, and they certainly don't always translate into the actions that others might think are related. So yeah. that gap between ideas and action is, is one of the big challenges. Uh -huh. 
as well as understanding how different religious traditions um, think about something like climate change. And climate change has some huge, huge theological implications. Yeah. Like for, um, you know, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. But it's, you know, very different perspective coming at it from Buddhism or from various parts of Hinduism. And so mm -hmm. that kind of, um, I think we, Tim and I both feel in the Green Seminary Initiative feels that that's, that's part of it, that the kind of tensions between religious traditions right now can so thwart the efforts of all of us to work together, recognizing that our actions are globally interconnected and that the work on these kind of tremendous, tremendous, immense global problems we need um, interfaith religious cooperation and exchange. So that's one of yeah. the challenges I would hold up. And of course, right now what we're seeing politically is really the fruition of 30 years of the wise use movement. Um, and I've uh -huh. written a lot about this. And very much the um, institutionalization of a dominion theology that says uh -huh. of nature is a natural resource that's put here for human use. That's what makes it valuable. Um, it doesn't have intrinsic value in its own. Uh -huh. And then the main value is what it can be turned into economically. And that's destroying yeah. um, ecological systems and, and human. Lost Laurel. We did lose Laurel. Huh. Oh, no. I was, I, I was yeah. just talking for ages. What happened? No, you, OK. you. Let's, let me pick up where you left off because I'm taking notes. Okay, you were talking about dominion theology and uh, the economic um, issues around dominion theology. So let's just pick up there. Um, and I think what I was saying was that, um, you know, the view of other aspects of creation as only having economic value and therefore only really having value when they're transformed into products uh -huh. um, is destroying human and biotic communities around the globe with really cascading consequences. Yeah. Um, and the idea that what we do here doesn't have an effect somewhere else is an illusion. So I think those are some of the challenges we tend to think individually. Yeah, and the and the creation story, um, or stories in Genesis, um, are part of the uh, root cause of the Dominion theology to think about uh, domination rather than partnership. Yeah. So uh, and I guess you're that's where you bring in biblical studies folks to, yeah. uh, you know, have a hermeneutic of suspicion about those um, those texts, but. Um, you know, there are a lot of creation stories in world religions out there, uh, so there's a lot to draw on. Yeah, and you have folks like Bill Brown or Ellen Davis who uh -huh. do the Hebrew Bible work to kind of retrieve what dominion might mean uh -huh. and how that might be. And I, I, I don't think this is my idea, but it's deeply enough in me that, that I, whoever I stole it from, I cannot credit anymore. <laughs> That's okay. But, one of the ways I, I love to read the first creation story in Genesis is that the entire stage is set 
and this is probably Sally McFay, everything had to be in place before humans were even possible within the imagination of God. And so I know Sally McFay says, you know, we are terrestrial beings. We are created for nowhere else to live. And, and I think that, that the reading of uh, that first Genesis text um, in that way just opens this, all this up. And the second, the second narrative story just about communion and community and relationship as the core of that story. And again, it's the hermeneutic, but if you uh, push back against the kind of economic and, and colonial hermeneutic that has dominated for so long, um, that even like Rita Nakashima Brock tears apart in yeah. uh, her large volume there about that, that it gives us a lot more space. Um, I, I also want to talk about challenges, um, you know, the commodification and economics around theological education are a block to what we're doing. Um, I think sometimes, um, depending on the level of imagination around uh, evaluation and rubrics, that it's uh, yeah. easy to think about uh, information in and product out through an evaluation vision that just will destroy any kind of ecological, holistic, or communal vision for what education might mean. And uh, mm -hmm. I think we have to be really careful when we are so dominated by kind of a market vision of what education is, uh, even in theological education, yeah. and the atomization of what we know. You know, people working within their disciplines or on a particular text or on a particular theologian to the detriment of kind of a more holistic understanding of, of thinking, and I, I, I don't want to speak, but um, I think both Laurel and I, um, Laurel, I hope I'm not spreading secrets here, but I think part of our conversation and our, our commitment to each other is that we find ourselves to be generalists in institutions and in uh, intellectual work that often rewards specialists and, and punishes oh. generalists. Yeah. 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 Thank well, you. And I, Go ahead, Tina. Go ahead, Laurel. I was just going to pick up. Um, I'm really glad that our uh, our host, our biblical scholar, brought in those two stories and how much work and theological education we all do on them. Ted Hebert's work on um, Genesis has been really influential for me, and one of the uh -huh. pieces is his work on the interpretation of Ruach, and typically uh -huh. translated often as spirit, but really present throughout those texts as um, air and breath. Yeah. And so I know one of the things we wanted to talk about were some of our pedagogical practices. Yes. And so one thing I, um, ha I drew is called the University of the Forest. And this is, will illustrate the generalist part of me. And so uh, from my biology background, I know a lot about the sort of respiratory cycle of the planet that humans and animals uh -huh. breathe oxygen without um, plants and trees. Huh. Um, and so it is this exchange constantly, this respiratory exchange, that I got to thinking about what if we realized that that was the exchange of God's breath? How might that uh -huh. make people feel differently about the defilement of uh -huh. the air, about air pollution, about the consequences of air pollution uh -huh. that... Um, Humans, often humans in very urban areas, um, located next to um, lots of industry, to power plants. But like in New Jersey, almost everyone in New Jersey were out of um, compliance with the Clean Air Movement. How might we tie this deeply 
immanental sense of God's breath animating all of life and providing life to these kind of real destructive um, elements of pollution and the ruining of lives. More people die of respiratory illnesses in New Jersey than gunshots, for instance. Hmm. How might that really get us to think about issues of race, issues of class, yeah. issues of um, pollution control, pollution generation, this sort of way um, to get people to think of the ethical reach of their own actions? You know, we all are deeply implicated in the production of air pollution. Yeah. And we also know that air pollution respects no national boundary. Okay. It doesn't respect the county or whether you're in a wealthy community or not necessarily, though it does have very specific local impacts. So that's one way I try and work with those biblical texts to then okay. really reach out. And that was a a sort of moment for me as a sociologist to realize in theological education I needed to work with these texts and that they were much richer than mm-hmm. I might have thought when I um, was not when I was not studying theology <laughs> when I didn't think I would be in theological school but the other thing that I really am struck with in that first story is that it says that the land brings forth and the waters bring forth and so what if we realize that the earth is co-creator with God and the earth is always involved in creation and creation is an ongoing process in that the waters and the land are always bringing forth new um, creatures, new generations of creatures, of plants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe that might help us think um, across this sometimes religion science divide that that affects some of our students. think more creatively about how connected all of the planets survive, you know, okay. thriving is with um, those basic sources of our life. Land produces food, waters. Um, we can't exist without water, air, and food. Yeah, it doesn't it always um, take your students also out of uh, the traditional patriarchal and male-based um, vision of creation because you've got Gaia who's you know in Greek earth who is an earth goddess um, along with the deep and I'm referring to Catherine Keller's work here uh, mm-hmm. the face of the deep um, chaos is a as feminine space so it's not solely a male creator patriarch that you've got um, a balance a more of a balance perhaps <laughs> Um, and to really appreciate, because I looked down at my notes of what I was thinking I would say about what shaped me, and uh-huh. ecofeminism has been extremely important to me yeah. from um, my days as an undergraduate um, and being introduced to it by our common um, and now departed colleague, John Kerry. Uh-huh. So I, I, I couldn't be who I am without that eco-feminist understanding of the connection between the sort of degradation of nature and of women, of people of color, of children, of animals, all of this sort of hierarchical connection that gets located as devalued in some ways. And so Rosemary Radford Ruther's work and Carolyn Merchant's work deeply shaped me. I remember I picked up yeah. Carolyn Merchant's The Death of Nature and I couldn't put it down. Uh-huh. And also, knowing that you did earlier interviews on womanism, 
want to say that Alice Walker was a really important early influence for me, and I'm really grateful to Melanie Harris for reminding us all that Alice Walker's womanism is an eco-womanism. Uh-huh. And that we lost sight of that in some parts of the ongoing conversation of womanism. We forgot how deeply um, respectful of the earth and what it uh -huh. taught Walker and just her deep sense of, you know, seeing God in the color purple, um, her deep sense of an eminental um, presence of the sacred, uh -huh. how um, that, that really shaped me, you know, going to school in Georgia, reading the color purple right yeah. when it first came out. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, so let's translate this to the classroom and some actual pedagogical strategies that you have in terms of developing courses, um, in terms of taking students through uh, learning about eco-theology and, um, you know, environmental justice. How do, you, how do you take them from the theory and in that also what is the theory that really, you know, guides you? You've mentioned some of it here already. Um, but how the, your pedagogy shapes the, the action that you are, are getting to with students. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, there's, the phrase that comes up is, is the place base, and I think that's still mm -hmm. accurate, but there's something more going on there along with the kind of critical social analysis that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about being in Ohio is that um, I live in Delaware, Ohio, mm -hmm. um, near the Olentangy and Scioto Rivers, north of Columbus, Ohio. And uh, a couple of years ago at a, a National Endowment for the Humanities Symposium on Retrieving the Land Ethic in Flagstaff, mm -hmm. um, realized that I live in the land of erasure, hmm. that we took all the names and erased the history of the peoples that we took the names from. So yeah. one of the strategies I use initially in the classroom for most courses on ecology is to try to embed students in place by talking about some of the peoples who lived here before and that, uh -huh. that kind of understanding of erasure. And then uh, I am someone who thinks uh, that Chet Bauer, C.A. Bowers, was onto something when he talks about uh, the kind of uh, folk traditions out of uh, traditionally minority cultures, including European cultures, might be an educational understanding that allows us to go forward and uh, being in in conversation with folks uh, from indigenous traditions as well as uh, other other folk traditions that allow kind of a larger vision of our world beyond just Christian theology I think is absolutely essential for mm -hmm. me and my students to understand both the limits and possibilities of theology and Christianity. I mean, you know, what does it mean to think about mission as hospitality as opposed to a persuasion and, and yeah. some of those things. And so those are the, some of the pedagogical narratives I try to bring into that. I think that story uh -huh. and students' stories of place and their location in place, uh, one of the elements I've done since even I did it in the dissertation work I did around Sapelo Island where I took uh, – Mm -hmm. college students out uh, kayaking 
around the Sea Islands, and we did some work down there, is the, this narrative of place and having students do a, a, a spiritual autogeography oh. to write, write themselves and their spiritual life in location to a particular place or, or particular places that they um, would see as anchoring them within their faith and spiritual understanding of themselves. And so for some folks, uh, a rock comes up, or for other folks, a church comes up. For other folks, um, like Laurel was mentioning earlier, Sanibel Island or a particular place uh, and being firmly located in that place comes mm -hmm. up. So yeah. For so many of, our, of the students that I teach are rootless and mm -hmm. placeless to kind of give them a, a, an opportunity to think about their embeddedness and then to put them in relationship with who are the, the peoples who lived there before you were there? Who are the uh -huh. people who live there now who are invisible to you? Uh, Delaware County, Ohio, um, only about uh, half of the Latino Latina population mm -hmm. is known in this county mm -hmm. um, for safety reasons for them. Yeah. Uh, so can you be open to the peoples in your area that um, are invisible in how you live your life. And so I think it sounds, I think those are ecological practices. Uh -huh. And then from there, can you be open to the creatures that are invisible? Can you be open to the creatures that we've erased from this place, the trees, the species, and to kind of move into that to where people begin to locate themselves. Um, in some ways, it's trying to push against the whole wilderness and, uh, versus lived location dichotomy that I think is completely yeah. untrue for our, our, our lived reality. That ends part one of our conversation with Dr. Tim Van Meter and Dr. Laurel Kearns on ecopedagogies. Stay tuned for part two, where we talk about specific classroom practices and their programs at their institutions.